0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
2: Because otherwise we get really crappy reviews if we don't. <laughs> I'm John Hartness.
1: I'm Natanya Barron.
0: I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 123, World Building and Your Underpants.
1: welcome today we have a very special guest we always have a special guest but this guest is near and dear to my heart
0: everyone who comes on this show is special it's near and
1: dear yeah yeah, yeah. Why,
0: why else why else would we have them if they weren't special
1: but i do feel like john is a, is a brother from another mother i don't say that about many people <laughs> but i think from the moment that we met there was some some weird chaos in the adhd stratosphere so john hartness welcome to world building for masochists hey tell us what's going on in your world lately
2: Oh my God! What isn't going on in my world lately? Um, let's see. I just wrapped a Kickstarter with our mutual friends Darren Kennedy and Patrick Dugan. A Kickstarter which will feature five—count 'em—five Natanya Perrin covers. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: most people don't realize that I, on the on the on the on the side, I do cover <clears throat> design, mostly to save my friends from bad covers. <laughs>
0: We we might have a conversation about that, uh, Natanya. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, somewhere along the 30 or 40 covers that Natanya has done for me, this will be another one. So I just wrapped the Kickstarter for that, which has my first high fantasy novel in quite a number of years that'll be releasing later this year i've got the ninth book in my quincy harker demon hunter series that'll be coming out at the very beginning of march i've got a collection of my shingles not safe for work home or literally anyone anywhere novellas that's going to release this month in february um Oh, and I run a publishing company, and I'm the program director for Con Carolinas, which is ramping up. That's the first weekend of June in Charlotte. Oh, yeah, and I run Saga, the genre fiction writer conference, in July. So I got a little bit going on.
0: You you keep yourself out of trouble.
2: No. (laughs) But I keep myself busy. (laughs) I can manage to find and cause trouble no matter how busy I am no matter how many George mostly, R. R. Martin hats I steal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mostly good trouble. I think one of the cool things about you, John, is that and I was actually just talking about this on threads today about like generosity is, is a really important and underappreciated part of our industry. And most of us have not gotten where we are if it weren't for people who were generous Absolutely. to us and who didn't pull up the ladder behind them. Um, because there are still people that sort of treat publishing like it's a competition and i think one of the the great things about fall staff and sort of the culture that you've built around that it is a culture of generosity of people helping people and and that's a pretty awesome sort of legacy to be to be living but what like just out of curiosity (laughs) how how did you come to that part of your writing career because you were pretty successful before you kind of started jumping into this part of it
2: well you were there for it actually (laughs) (laughs) it happened at a con carolinas the con carolinas where we met that was very, very sweaty um, because the AC broke in the hotel. But I was self-publishing a lot of my work, and I was publishing my Black Knight Chronicles through Bellbridge Books out of Memphis with Deb Dixon. And you want to talk about somebody who has found success and not pulled the ladder up after them? I wouldn't be anywhere that I am without Deb's help and guidance and tutelage. But I had read a book called Changeling's Fall by my friends, Emily Leverett and Sarah Adams. And I had pitched it to a couple of agents that I knew. I had sent it over to Deb to take a look at. And it just wasn't getting any traction. And Sarah and Emily came to me at Con Carolina and said, we need your advice. Okay. Don't do anything I do. Ever. (laughs) And I said, okay, we know that. All right.
1: What would John not do? Yeah.
2: So they said, but we think we're just going to self-publish this book because we're not getting any traction with the traditional route. And I said, oh, God, please don't. To which they, they were a little offended, which I get. That's not exactly what you want to hear from your friend. And I said, well, why not? You self-publish. What's wrong with it? So there's nothing wrong with it. I self-publish. I'm a hustler and a huckster and I'm very active on social media and I'm big on getting out there and making people know me and meet me. And I sell books that way. You two are both tenured or tenure track college professors with real lives and real jobs. And you're terrible at social media. God awful at it. (laughs) Um, You do about two conventions a year and you wouldn't sell a dollar you wouldn't make a dollar. Please don't do that to yourself. I'll tell you what, you keep shopping the book for the rest of the year, and if you can't sell it by January, I'll publish the damn thing. Now in my heart of hearts, I felt like there was no chance this book wasn't gonna sell. <laughs> no one's gonna call me on this bluff <laughs> but you know what happens when you tell an author if you do if this happens or if this doesn't happen I'll publish the book all they hear is I'll publish the book <laughs> November comes and I get an email that's the title was just did you mean it and I was like <laughs> well I said it I guess I meant it 300 books later, Falstaff <laughs> has over 70 <laughs> authors contracted. We legitimately have published over 300 titles since 2016. This is year eight. <laughs> um,
1: That's wild.
2: It's disgusting. It's ridiculous. Um, and we're releasing the fourth book in the Ice Chronicles, which was launched by Changeling's Fall. We'll be launching the fourth book this year. Um it took me editing the book to see why it wasn't getting bought. But it was, a, it was a one-note fix, and it took them less than an hour to make the change. So that tells you how hard it is to get a book picked up that something that easy to fix threw it out. And I get that now. Now that mm-hmm. we accept fewer than half a percent of work that comes across the door actually nothing comes across the door anymore we're just not open for unsolicited submissions ever again so if you want to submit to us meet me at a convention or have your agent we're open to agented stuff but you know i do 20 something conventions a year you can find me and pitch a book you're hard to miss yeah I'm very large.
1: <laughs> well, before we talk more about false stuff, we definitely want to talk about uh, sort of that that level of complexity. But I want to talk a little bit about you as a writer. Sure. And you've written across a lot of different genres. I think most people probably know you from the Quincy Harker books. If they're going to know anything, Whoopi Goldberg somehow found them and fell in love with them. And that was a whole thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> That was pretty neat. So I got a so random when...
2: email from Whoopi Goldberg and I didn't believe it was her. So I made her send me a proof of life video. And she did.
1: <laughs> yep. It's absolutely wild. But, but what I, and, and the Harker books are, I mean, you're writing so many of them. I mean, how many do you have now of the, of the individuals? You've got multiple seasons. You've got nine seasons. No.
2: nine. So seasons? the first four, the first four volumes were each four novellas. Okay. So I so only, sixteen. Novellas. I only count those as four books, but.
1: Uh-huh. Okay.
2: Technically <laughs> that's 16, but I say we're on nine. Plus two short story collections set in that world. Plus a couple dozen shorts in various anthologies and collections and my Patreon and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I call it nine. After the fourth book, I switched to novels because they were, they're a little easier to keep track of for my ADHD addled brain. It's actually easier to write a novel than it is to write four linked novellas and i came yeah, to that I conclusion I, after somewhere. writing 8 linked novellas that spanned 2 years so and two volumes so each novella had to have an arc each collection of 4 novellas had to have an, another arc and then the whole thing of eight had a whole big arc. And I decided I should never do that to myself again. So I promptly then had uh, created a Bubba and Harker crossover, which spanned three novels and three novellas and two distinct series.
1: So how how do you manage that? And I, I somehow don't think that you're quite... Uh, uh, Mr. Moresca here, who we know has has beautiful, uh, you know, three ring binders with with gorgeous annotations and, and, and detailed indexes and whatnot. I, I'm just spitballing here. I'm just spitballing here.
2: No, it.
1: So tell us, tell us what goes on in that ADHD brain of yours.
2: I write things and I put in big bold face, all caps, the crap I can't remember. And I send it to one woman, Melissa MacArthur has edited the entire Harker series. So I send everything to her and she keeps the Bible and plugs in the crap I forgot, like who's na- who is what name and what city did this happen in. And then sometimes when neither one of us can remember and we don't want to go back through nine books to find it, we ask my Facebook group. I ask the fans they're gonna you
1: have a hive mind
2: they're gonna call me on it if I screw it up I may as well use them and and then they
0: always feel great when you ask them because they're like ooh I'm helping oh
2: yeah and they're the <laughs> ones that I have to figure out how to justify my screw ups to in the very in one of the very first Harker books I said dragons don't exist in Harker 5 there's a dragon
1: I was gonna say I think I made that you
2: way. did um <laughs> So I had to... So one of my fans emailed me and said, uh, you said dragons don't exist. To which I responded with, unreliable narrator. <laughs> First person POV, baby. Harker thought that dragons didn't exist. He was wrong. Yeah.
0: That that That's an easy self. Like, you said dragons exist. I was wrong. <clears throat>
2: yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, but some people don't like saying those words.
0: It, it is one of those things I, I find with with science fiction and fantasy that people sometimes your audience takes things that a person says too literally like you know so therefore something world buildingly like dragons don't exist they're like oh that is a fact rather than that's just this guy's opinion or what have Mm -hmm. you because you'll Mm -hmm. see that all the time where like somebody will like on star trek somebody will say something about history and then you know, twenty years later, they do a show that takes place two hundred years before that doesn't quite jibe with that. and People are like, "Well, that's breaking canon." No, that means that, that guy was not a history student, right? And he doesn't know jack shit about what's happening. Yeah,
2: what happened? I now. screw stuff up all the time. I'm I'm a married man with two cats. I have three people in this house who are happy to tell me how wrong I am on the regular. So it's no big deal for my characters to be at least as stupid as I am. <laughs> That's my defense. Yeah, I think
1: I, Well, and I think the first person, I think it's a really good point, though. First person, I think is, I think some readers forget that it's a character telling the story. Right. Or at least I think good first person is a character telling the story, whether it's a journal or their their memories or whatever. It, it is still seen through their prism. And I know that when I've done books in subsequent different first persons, cause I love to do yes, that. Yes, you do. Um, I've had to, uh, I've, you have to establish really quickly that the version of this character that that other character may have seen is not the truth and it's not who they see. Right. Right. But it's so cool to be able to kind of flip the camera and do that neat cinematic thing where you kind of see that whole scene again, but played through the eyes of somebody else. Oh yeah.
2: Which,
1: you know, super fun to do. I
2: love stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have a very cinematic style of writing. I mean, I would definitely say that you're, you're like, you kind of have like, it's like John wick plus, you know, uh, with, with more swears and, and dick jokes and, <laughs>
2: It's like uh, if Sam Raimi made a John Wick movie.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and That's and so point. Sam, call <laughs> me. when you're when you're when you're world building that stuff, when you're thinking about the environments in the world, how does that how 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 does John Hartness approach that? Like when you're when you're sitting down to write the next one. So or or whatever.
2: Some of your viewers and listeners might have questioned the title. I know Marshall looked, me, Marshall looked at me Marshall looked at me like I you was You said
0: that's what the title should be <clears throat> and I'm I'm trusting you my friend So
2: <laughs> I have said this on panels I've said it as part of presentations I firmly believe that world building should be like your underpants You need it there to provide structure and keep everything where it's supposed to be but I don't need to see it I don't need to know that you're world building. I don't need a multi-paragraph info dump, especially given that I'm an urban, primarily an urban fantasy writer with a background in theater. I have directed and performed in M- Mamet and Shepard plays. So I'm all about the dialogue and the punching. So when I'm building a world, I need to make sure that pieces of it are consistent with the world that we live in because a lot of my stuff is set in the world that we're in only with dragons or vampires or all of the above. It's also frequently set in Charlotte or Atlanta, which are cities I've spent a significant amount of time in and I can tip and I can I can get the travel times right. Because mm. nothing drives me crazier than having someone spend 3 hours getting across a city that should take you 45 minutes to get across even in heavy traffic or somebody trying to get from let's say Raleigh to Burlington at 5:30 p.m. and do it in 20 minutes. No, sir. You you can't do that at 5:30 a.m. and you sure can't do it at 5:30 p.m.
1: <laughs> and now with all the construction going on.
2: Whew. Right. So my world building I shoot for reasonable accuracy with the world and consistency with the rules I've set I find that a lot more of my world building goes into how my monsters behave and can behave than in the land masses I don't have to create I don't have to talk about what the continent looks like freaking google it But I have to figure out whether or not vampires show up in mirrors in my world or not. Because depending on the canon determines whether or not they can see their reflections. Whether you can take a picture of a vampire with this or with a Polaroid, and why and why not. In my world, you can take a digital picture of a vampire, but you can't do it with old school film because the silver doesn't Work because of the silver it's the silver oh, cool. that they don't like that doesn't work well with vampires so you can see them in a new cheap mirror but a good antique mirror is not going to show them up and i had that i had some i had one of my guys in the black knight chronicles hop in the back seat of a car and talk to somebody in the front seat in the rear view mirror and they're like wait you said vampires can't be seen in mirrors I said, no vampires can't be seen in good mirrors there's no silver in a shitty Honda's rear view mirror. <laughs> oh, okay. But on in Lost, I the whole point of that book is what happened to the Lost Colony on Roanoke Island. So I went to Roanoke. It's I did a show in I did a show in Virginia Beach and then I took a couple of days and went to Mantio right after and just hung out. I wanted to I wanted to feel I hadn't been there in several years. I wanted to see what it felt like. I wanted to see what it smelled like. Scent is such a such a strong, such an evocative sense. So I really wanted to get the smell of ocean and a lot more smell of honeysuckle than I remembered. So mm-hmm. that was really important to me in working on this book in particular because it's not set in Charlotte. So I had to go do some research, and oh darn! I had to spend a couple of days at the beach. Hmm. Writer's life is oh the tragedy,
0: oh the (laughs) the 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 things we do to to, to suffer for our art.
2: It's like Teresa Glover's Teresa Glover's book is set in New Orleans. She hates having to research that. Oh darn!
0: Oh darn! (laughs) I mean, that is, that is the the fun part about if you're doing any sort of primary world fantasy is research can be you go and walk the streets and yeah. know what it physically feels like to be there.
2: Because there's a there's a, a vibration to a city, everything, every place you go feels different. I grew up way out in the country. The, and now when I go home to visit my sister and I stay the night. I have to bring a noise machine because it's too quiet. Right now, the The street in, in my house is 50 feet from the windows on the front of my house. Uh, there's not nearly as much activity in Bullock Creek, South Carolina, as there is in the center of Charlotte, where I currently reside, so... So yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I always feel like I, I joke that certain cities are like people to me. Like, I mm-hmm. there's there is like a, a, almost a sense of living, and I think quite a few authors have even i think NK Jemisin did the the city in the city Is that what it's called i forget exactly but where cities cities do have city in we became. the city is, city, is we became. city
0: in the city is is uh is, is china mayville yeah
1: I, uh, cities and cities but also very <laughs> fascinating cities but for me it's london and i i i was lucky enough to visit london quite a few times while i was you know writing gods of londinium which i wrote over like a 10 year period but getting to be there Multiple times being lucky enough to be able to walk those streets and kind of steep myself in the smell. I can when I'm in London, I can smell where the river is. This sounds crazy, but I can orient myself based on where I can smell the water coming from. Mm -hmm. And imagine when it used to be even stinkier, um, how how essential that was to getting around and where you would live and where you would go. And and just having the opportunity to stand there in that in that feeling. um, And that's the kind of thing that
2: only works for visitors.
1: Because yeah, you're nose yeah. blind
2: to it if you after you live there.
1: But you can go back. I've gone back to places that I grew up that I, I never wanted to go back to. And I see it through a totally different view now because I've been other places. Yeah. So I think if you're way long enough and you kind of emotionally sever yourself... <laughs> It works.
2: If you do enough therapy, you can go back to those <laughs> places, <clears throat> and I and think that s-
0: and then see it with clear eyes and be like. And oh. the
2: jury is definitely out on whether any of us have had enough therapy or not.
1: Uh, either, no, it's therapy. Therapy is there's no endpoint to therapy. It's an important thing to understand. <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah. if you've done enough to achieve this particular yes. goal, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but there's just going to be another one that shows up after that. Right. Um, sure. But what, what's funny is that when I went back to where I grew up and went to high school, my kids were like, oh, I wish we lived here. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to do where I grew up. And I'm like, you kids live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Like, you live at the center of, like, this. It's such a cool place it, to live. And they're like, yeah, yeah it's fine.
2: <sighs> but, you know, just like your wherever you grew up sucks when you're young. It doesn't matter where it is it's awful just like there's a cross canadian ragweed song that says you're always 17 in your hometown doesn't matter
0: yeah doesn't matter
2: how much how white this gets i go back to western york county south carolina and (laughs) i'm six foot one i weigh 300 pounds and i look like biker trash dozens of people there. Little John. Yep. Yeah. Because there was a time when I was marshall size. That time was junior high school. But
1: I was going to say you were probably <laughs> 11 or 12. Um but that I mean I think that that experiencing place as world building is is a really amazing thing that writers yeah. do and I think writers often see place as character and as as building so so many times when i've been in a rut i've just gone somewhere else yeah and you hear the stories of that place and, and it when just, you're it does something to your brain
2: chemistry. when you're working in urban fantasy or working in i think i think marshall i think you called it primary world fiction which is a great term that i'm totally stealing um
0: it's a good term I like it yeah I think it's more accurate because yeah so many things are called urban fantasy when they're like set like in the swamps of Louisiana it's like mm, is bubba. that urban it's not particularly urban
2: <laughs> but when you're working in that kind of genre less is more when it comes to on the yeah. page world building I don't need to tell people what an American city looks like yeah there are sidewalks they suck don't fall on them um <laughs> I don't need to describe I can tell you that it's cobble that it's a cobblestone sidewalk and you get it. I don't need to go into how broken up the mortar is unless that's relevant. So when working in the familiar you just if you hit the high points just a couple of things here and there it then lets you dig in with those sensory ties that can give your reader a more visceral connection. Because what we're trying to do is make a reader feel something. Sometimes we want them to laugh. Sometimes we want them to cry. Sometimes we want them to be nauseated. I write horror too, so... Oh yeah, that's another thing that's going on. Um, I'm working with a filmmaker on adapting one of my short stories into a into a short film. So that's awesome. that was a neat conversation we had this weekend at a show that didn't have nearly enough people and didn't sell nearly enough books. But I don't know if I if I get a short film out of it, that'll be interesting at least.
1: That's awesome. So what are so you talked about visiting places mm-hmm. and you talked about kind of steeping yourself in. That what about what else inspires you to world build? Like, do you have are there games or movies or other books that you read that kind of makes the brain go? Because I mean, obviously you're you're just an indelible well of storytelling at this point. Um, <laughs> I tend
2: so. to I tend to world build last. It's it's not, I my first draft is very white box. So I have to go back in and add in those details to flesh it out. You know, we we talk about the the three-legged stool of story. You've got to have character, you've got to have plot, you've got to have setting. Otherwise, your story is a stool on two legs, and, well, that's a ladder, and it falls over (laughs) under you. Don't do that. It bad. So my world-building is built, is designed to serve character first because that's where all my stories start. They almost all start with a character idea and a what if question. What if there were more fat vampires? That's how the Black Knight Chronicles started. I thought there needed to be more fat vampires because fat people are easier to catch and we are what we call a target rich environment and we are well marbled so why would you try to chew on a scar's guard when you got this buffet right here Just packed Go with oh, good
1: good old kobe beef right
2: exactly this is some wagyu shit right here y'all <laughs> so i so my world building is to serve either character or story it's a it's how I make things happen. I need Bub. I wrote a whole Bubba novella. Um, the one, Swamp Music, the one with the gator on the cover. <laughs> I wrote that because, like everyone, during the time that I wrote it, I was watching Tiger King. And I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. I should write a story. Ooh, what if Tiger King's park was run by lycanthropes? And then they were wear gators. Now that's funny. So because I now needed wear gators, I needed swamps. And there's a level of psychosis involved in all of this, so it had to be in Florida.
0: Makes sense. I mean, yeah.
2: If you're gonna have a wear gator with a mohawk, it's gonna happen in Florida. It ain't going. That ain't happening anywhere else.
0: In Florida, that's just. Tuesday. Exactly.
2: (laughs) So I built a whole park because I wanted that gag because I thought it would be funny. The times I've drawn maps, it is not because I love drawing maps. It is because I need to figure out how many rooms we have to fight through to get to the boss fight. All my maps are on graph paper and they look like some nine-year-old's 8-bit Legend of Zelda map, and it just says, fight here. Nope, big fight here. Really big fight over here. Trap here. So, I'm built using my world building to push character because for my work, people buy my books for the characters. Um, Any idiot can write a fight scene. Michael Bay proved that time and again. Um, I don't know Michael Bay. He may be very intelligent. His
1: Well, they keep letting Zack Snyder make movies, so...
2: Well, mistakes are made. Um, if you c- give me the keys to the Hollywood kingdom and I'll fix that, <laughs> then... A lot of my friends will be, make all new movies. <laughs> a whole bunch of my a whole bunch of my talented friends will be making hundred million dollar movies, and Zack Snyder will be doing Indie Go to fund his next project. <clears throat> but anyway, there we go. There's your hate mail for the episode.
0: <laughs> I think the, the Venn diagram overlap of Zack Snyder fans and people who listen to our podcast is probably pretty minimal. But you
2: know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, those those circles might be. So yeah,
0: I'm not saying there's no overlap, but.
2: Yeah.
1: So, okay. Now let's move into the other direction. One of the other directions, (laughs) the the many, the many cardinal directions of John Hartness. Um, So with Falstaff though, Mm -hmm. you know, that this, this has put you in a different place uh, Mm -hmm. as a publisher and a writer. Um, Talk a little bit, if you don't mind about sort of, we talked a little bit about the founding of, of Falstaff, but this concept of misfits, misfit toys, um, how how does that... How does, do you feel like that's reflected in, in the stories that, that you do tell and the ones that appeal to you as a publisher, which are often very different um, from from the books that you write, right? Oh, yeah. I, mean, we, I don't know that we could write a book together. It probably wouldn't make any sense. No. Um, but, but I think we also... Like some of the same things in stories, like very character driven stories. Absolutely. um Mine have more kissing and yours have more punching, but you know. Well, your. Sex scenes and fight scenes are not that different at the end of the day.
2: They're really so... not. And I mean, your prose is very lush, very descriptive, poetic a lot of times. Mine. Chewy.
1: Go ahead. You can call it chewy. You always call it
2: I always call it chewy. Um, <laughs> seriously, the more the more educated someone at the table looks the more likely i am to send them toward a natanya baron book um, because it is it's it's beautiful prose it's really well written and like i said i'm a david mamet play with a lot with a with a little bit more description involved um, and probably more f bombs we should i should do that sometime i should take glengarry glen ross and any harker book and see who wins i bet i kick mammoth's ass (laughs) but it's got to be like
0: percentage of total text not you know because
2: yeah that's true
0: you could probably get more fucks in a novel than you would get in glengarry glen ross because there's less words Totally
1: and then there's fucks per play. minute, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that's my <laughs> typing speed. I can get up to 100 <laughs> it's per minute. But when I'm looking at books for Falstaff, the concept of being the misfit toys of fiction came from some of the stuff we originally presented and produced. I told the story of Changelink's Fall, which is a fantastic book. <clears throat> and that book has some really fascinating world building because it the majority of it takes place in fairy except it's not fairyland like we see in midsummer it's a contemporary university in the fairy realm so that was a book that had been shopped around and shopped around and couldn't find a home well then one of the early pairs of books we reissued was aj hartley's Um, Will Hawthorne books, which had originally been published, I'm gonna say Tor and probably be wrong, but it was a major imprint and the rights had reverted and I loved the books so I picked them up. And then we had a few friends of mine who had unfortunate experiences with small presses who weren't paying people, so they pulled their rights back. And then we had some writers who had gotten burned or burned out by the whole industry. Not that I would mention anyone by name or by gesture in this, but some folks, after you spend time in this industry, it beats beats the crap out of you. And, you know, our people reached out to people they knew who were talented writers but weren't getting their due and weren't getting the opportunities. And that's the goal. I've never wanted to get rich running Falstaff books. Good news, because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that is a reasonable expectation for an independent publisher. You are not going to get rich.
0: As they say, the, the the best way to make a small fortune in publishing you is start to start with a with large, large one. Fortune.
2: I want to make my living selling the books I write. Falstaff is designed to pay my people and break even. I want to pay to produce the books and I want to pay the costs to run the company. My money comes from my book sales. So the whole point of Falstaff is to give opportunities to writers who deserve a break and either have been treated badly by publishing or have been ignored by publishing and haven't been given the opportunity. In some cases, that's because they're underrepresented. Maybe they're too gay. Maybe they're too weird. Maybe they're too old. Maybe they're too young. Maybe they're too whatever. Well, you're not too whatever for us. We are the weird kid's table. You know, I've got books that we have published from award-winning, best-selling authors that we were the 41st publisher that they were sub- that book was submitted to this is people who've sold tens of books to major presses and this amazing title that we've got on the shelf went through 40 other presses and I picked it up and I loved the book no it's not marketable I don't care I want, to, I want the company to break even. I want the company to be slightly profitable. But I'm not... We're not going to make the New York Times list. That's just not going to happen because I'm not going to play the game.
1: Right. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, that's that in itself is...
2: As we have discovered over the years and continue to be reminded again and again... So much of publishing is rigged, and it's rigged against the little folk. I can't break someone free and put them on the New York Times list, but I can break someone out enough to get noticed by the next bigger press up the ladder. Yeah, I... You're like one of my massive success stories, Natanya. <laughs> because you were out of the game largely.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I I've told the story a couple of times, but when I met John, I had just published a book with a big 6 at the time publisher and it was um it was a disaster. Like the whole thing I lost my faith in everything. The book was a failure. They didn't do any marketing at all for it. They literally told me over a prefixed dinner in downtown Manhattan that it was their bad that was their actual words (laughs) are bad are bad that this thing that you worked on for you know all this time and got this you know sizable advance for is just gonna rot on the vine and die and as a result we will never want to work with you again Um, yeah it's our fault but you're fired hi
0: we 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 ruined your life but there was just a whoopsie daisy (laughs)
1: yeah and i had i had you know personally a really tough time my husband had lost i think three jobs in a row from layoffs I was the primary, you know, breadwinner of the family, and I just took some time off. I just, I was like, I just can't. I, 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 don't know if I love this enough to go through what I've gone through. I was having issues with my other small press publisher. They changed hands. Um, I kind of lost my, my, my love of, of of how that was all going because the editor I'd been working on before was just such an important part of that book. And I was like, is the, is this even something that I want anymore? And I think we all have to kind of come to that point. Absolutely. Like, why am I doing this? Do I really even want to do this? Who, who am I as a writer anyway? Um, and I've been chasing it for so long that I was like, I don't, I, I just don't know. So I took some time off, met John. And I remember he just emailed me out of the blue at one point and said, do you want to write in this shared world series? We're doing these things called the, the Shadow Council Archives that are basically pre prequels to the Harker books that are kind of loosely in the world. Um, and you basically, you can do whatever the hell you want, it just has to have some loose connection to everything. And the story for what ended up being these marvelous beasts just kind of came out of nowhere. And it was really just having someone who was like, I trust you is this thing. Not just this thing, but this thing that I created. Like, John didn't have to be generous about that and, like, invite people into this sort of shared world building. Um, and that was just, it really, writing three novellas in a row got me back to believing that I could actually do this. And then I enjoyed it. And I wrote something that was just for me. Lesbian lamias you know, power-hungry sylphs, a glottisant, a unicorn, like...
2: A questing in, beast. You know,
1: the nineteen the 1910s, you know, in beautiful outfits and balls and all that shit. And, uh, but what John's not talking about that's also really important, um, not to, again, to ego stroking here, but the editorial process at Falstaff is incredible. And as someone who published with a big publisher who got copy edits back and not edits, um, no developmental edits, it was amazing to work with good editors who did create story bibles and were like you know your lamia had four arms in this scene but in this one you mentioned she has six i'm like i just lost those arms or their eyes were yellow here and now they're blue Like i probably should fix that um and that that confidence having someone to believe in you because as john's pointed out so many times there's so much talent out there, it has nothing to do with talent. No. But because you get rejected so much, you start to say, well, clearly it's just me. Like clearly I'm not good enough, but that's not ever the case. And you know, I am one of the people that do enjoy social media. So I've been able to leverage having books out and, and I do like talking about this stuff and finding my audience. Um, but really if it wasn't for having someone just hold, hold open the door and be like, wanna, wanna come hang out? <laughs> And
2: that's all we're trying to do. I got an email uh, about two years ago from Alex Bledsoe. Now, Mm -hmm. Alex Bledsoe is one of the finest authors working today. I will fight any... Super nice guy, too. Oh, dream of a human being. But I will fight anybody who argues with me on that point because they're wrong. His Tufa Mm -hmm. novels are so gorgeous and they resonate so strongly with me as a southern guy who has family from appalachia who grew up in those who grew up going to those mountains alex sends me a message we met at a con i don't know 10 12 years ago hung out for a couple of days got to be friendly not super tight but we got to know each other a little i get a random email saying hey um I've got a horror novel, and my agent's having trouble selling it. Are you? And I didn't even finish reading. I was like, "Yes." I just emailed him <laughs> and said, "Yes." And he messaged me back. and said, "Did you read the whole thing?" I said, "No." He said, "I attached a chapter." I said, "I don't care." <laughs> uh, do I send the contract to you or who's your agent? <laughs> He's like, "That's it." I said, "We work differently." than a lot of presses because I don't care how anybody else does it. I own the company. Nobody gets to fire me. I am the dude. (laughs) So I'm not looking to do one book with an author and then kick them to the curb because the marketing didn't pan out. I work in science fiction and fantasy primarily, which means we live and die by the series. I want them all. Even the relationship between a publisher and an author for one book will outlast most Hollywood marriages. And if we're doing a series, then it could be a 10-year relationship if we're doing five books, which is not uncommon for us to do with somebody. Um, I think at this point, it's hard to count how... Books work with us because we have done so many novellas and collected them. But what are we at, Natanya? Four with you, um, Wothwood.
1: Well, yeah, four, four plus the three novellas, yeah. which is one book, and then two in the in the duology. Yeah, yeah.
2: So. But... well
1: no and you can't, and, and rock revival so he, he John published a, a, a mainstream fiction book yep. that I could not find anywhere that was about one of my passions which is rock music which is also and, one of uh, my
2: passions which because I'm yep. an old lighting designer and lighting director for rock and roll so
1: the only book of mine that my dad has read cover to cover <laughs> um, and he said do people really swear that much these days <laughs> <laughs>
2: I thought the language was pretty tame for most of the I shows I've it, worked on. I, but,
1: yeah. So,
2: we're the misfit toys of fiction because of our approach to the work. We work differently. Um, I agree that our editorial is among the best in the industry. Um, when I talk to people who have had big press publication I have done heavier developmental edits on re-releases than some of the books we've released got when they were published by New York because and I get the question of hey uh, are you sure I'm like just do the work just because your last editor didn't call you on it doesn't mean I'm not going to call you on it And I don't edit everything we do, obviously. There's no way I could. But I probably do about a third of what we produce. So I've edited... I don't know, a couple dozen novels at this point. (laughs) I guess I'm getting pretty good at it.
0: But also, especially within science fiction fantasy, that level of support for series is so critical. I mean, how many times have we seen people on Reddit or Facebook or whatever who are like, Oh, there's a new book and I'm not gonna get it until the whole series is out because I have already been burned by George R. R. Martin or whoever. Sure. So therefore therefore I don't trust anybody. And so therefore nobody buys book one. And therefore then, then there's a the, no you know, the mainstream publisher is just like it's like, well there's no market for it, so we will drop the, we're not gonna finish this series. And then and then the people are like, see, I was right.
2: Ooh, the series ooh, in i have visual aids <laughs> natanya hasn't ooh. seen these in real life yet
1: for our readers <laughs> our listeners may not be able to see the dear entirety.
0: listeners john <laughs> has gone off to get visual aids
2: which will not help you
1: no, but we might be able to have some show notes clips
2: hey good we ne- might we have some show notes good news i'm wearing pants
1: oh i'm excellent very appreciative and hopefully the underwear, but we're not going to ask. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Those look so pretty.
2: Yeah, when you can oh. see them.
1: Oh, they're shiny. I like the gloss. The gloss was a good choice.
2: These. Yes.
1: I did those covers. <laughs> those are Joseph Brassi's amazing. It's a duology. Or is he doing a third?
2: Yeah. The third book comes out favorite. later this year. Um, and then we'll talk about whether or not he wants to do a fourth. Those were originally published by Angry Robot. Mm-hmm. I bought the third book before I had the rights to the first and second for re-release. I did the same thing with David Coe. I released his times I released Times Assassin, which is the third book in one of his series that was also originally published the first two by Angry Robot. Um, I liked the I liked the books. I liked the authors. I don't care that I'm not getting paid for one and two. <laughs> I've got Rod R.S. Belcher's Golgotha series. We've done book four. We've contracted five and six. Tor has one through three. They dropped him after three. Um, I don't care that Tor's still getting paid on books one through three. I'll make my money on four through six, and the books are fantastic. These, Dragon Road in particular, I felt like... um, I felt like Dragon Road should have made the Nebula shortlist the year it came out, because I think the book is amazing. And I thought that the former publisher um, dropped the ball on it. And, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's an ownership change. Sometimes there's a leadership change. Um, Mike Underwood was on your podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, he bought these books. (laughs) these are underwood acquisitions both of those um both of those series um then when he was no longer with angry robot they weren't continuing the series it was like a white house regime change yeah. when the yeah. head of the editorial for the us was gone mm-hmm. um well i win i get him <laughs> and I-, I think
1: that's one of the really cool things too is that you kind of hit the iron hot during the self-publishing boom, and you were able to leverage some of the things that you learned and this ability to print on demand, Yeah. which up until eight years ago was, I mean, I remember when my, fir- when my first book came out, uh, Pilgrim of the Sky, my editor took me to a place where they were printing books one at a time, and it was like this brand new technology, right? It was going to change everything, and that was 2012. It wasn't like a long, long time ago, but within four years, you saw a complete- yeah shift and turn around so you're not having to do what unfortunately the entire much of the the industry for publishing is built on which is remainders overproducing, warehousing all of that stuff for tax breaks etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a very complicated yeah. unfun thing to talk about in a world building podcast
2: yeah. <laughs> my warehousing but, is three bookshelves in my office
1: right that's... right you don't have to assume that huge amount of risk and you can focus on the stories and i think that that's just it's it's clear from the quality and we're starting to see fall staff books Come up in major award categories and starting, and I think that that's just going to, yeah. you know, continue. One of our titles pretty- made
2: the long list for the uh, Stokers this year. Um, mm-hmm. Elmarie Woods, The Open Book, which is an am- an amazing uh, horror collection. It's mm-hmm. uh, it made the long list. It final no- finalists and final nominees haven't come out yet, but I have faith because that book's amazing. That's so pretty rad. Yeah, so it's so it's fun. It's um, and I do look at world building very differently because we work with a lot of newer authors. So I have to talk to them about the world and where about we're going. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> I have to have a lot of conversations about authors' underpants. <laughs> where are we going with this? Um, I'm currently on edits for October Santorelli's second book. Um, in his crap I'm gonna forget the name of the series now city of city of day is the first book and city of night is the one I'm currently working on the editorial for and the world building in this series is really fascinating because all of the characters and all of the plot are driven by an aspect of this world and this society which is based on an awful thing that happened a long time ago that changed the fabric of the city so all of that impacts everything and i'm the editor for this so now i'm like okay uh is this gonna (laughs) so toby is this coming back (laughs) or is this breadcrumbing something or did you just throw it out there because you thought it was cool because one of those you can keep, and one of those we're cutting. And Toby is very intelligent, and he knows to say, "Yes, it's coming back. It's a breadcrumb," and then <laughs> he gets to leave in his cool world-building thing. And
0: no, I totally meant to do that to set up a thing.
2: And I'm he understands. Totally
0: going to do it in book three.
2: Oh yeah, and he <laughs> totally knows that my neurospicy brain will not remember in the next book to be looking for this thing so he can get away with it, but hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast until he gets his edits until he finishes doing his edits for me. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things that I, um, that I have to consider when I'm editing and when I'm publishing. And, you know, the structure of the world the structure of the magic system all of these are pieces that are important because they're important to the characters and people don't people don't go buy that new book about a wizard in Chicago they go buy the Harry Dresden book Mm -hmm. because Harry Dresden's a great character and Butcher's a hell of a writer And Harry Treston's a great character. That's why we all rip him off. Um, You know, people go by the next next Sanderson Cosmere novel, and Brandon's world-building is exquisite, but we care because of the characters. Mm -hmm. Tress of the Emerald Sea was... fantastic book not because it was all of these neat weird oceans which it was there were neat weird oceans but the characters were the soul Mm -hmm. of the book and his world supported that and uplifted that and that's what I try to make sure that my writers are focusing on is that everything works together to build a cohesive book that is going to keep people up reading way past their bedtime and make them send you emails from work the next day that say, I'm completely useless at my job today because I was up reading your book till three in the morning. That is the... That's always the best feeling. Oh, my God. It's the best hate mail ever. (laughs) I hate you so much. I am so useless at work today. Good. Because...
0: (laughs) My job is done. Yeah.
2: Awesome. (laughs) I'm gonna go take a nap because obviously my work here is done.
1: <laughs> so, I think we give a pretty good idea of what you do. Like, is there anything that? And obviously, don't drop names here. But you go through a lot of you go through a lot of submissions. Um, are there world building things that give you the ick? That like you just sort of drop it like a hot poker kind of not hot poker but hot. I mean I <laughs> it don't no, no. it like it's not hot like it's hot but not in a good way um.
2: obviously there are, there are things that we believe and our beliefs are expressed in our fiction um, we have a whole list of things that my editors if these things exist in the story we're going to have a conversation I'm not saying that they're not allowed, but we're going to have a conversation. Obvious misogyny, obvious bigotry, homophobia, anti-Semitism, thinly or well-veiled racism, any of that that is portrayed in a positive light i'm not saying don't have racists in your story dan jolly wrote an amazing thriller called the storm which is racist as all get out because it's set in a fictionalized version of the town he lives in and you know dan also lives in the southeastern united states and there are a fair number of people here who don't like people who don't look like me and him but all of those are the bad guys so if you're using awful people to point out how awful something is, then okay, we can go with that. But if you're celebrating this, then it's not going to fly. And I don't mm-hmm. have to publish the book. <laughs> so There's
1: like a weird yeah, I I've I've seen some things where it's almost like the world building is wish fulfillment for certain people. Yeah. Like they're going to create yeah. this world of women who are just naturally submissive and you know create natural harems because they must be with the men not that anyone would ever write books like that um no, no you, one would you, ever you, write you, that. but i think there, yeah, there is a, there is definitely a, a line of that stuff but and i think that that's something really special too about about false staff is that you've created a place where people do feel protected who who do have marginalized voices who have books that you know were told that this was too queer, this was too neurodivergent, like the characters... I mean, I I had trouble placing one of my books because both the characters are neurodivergent and people did not understand the characters. And getting, getting someone to understand people who don't think like the average book character is very, very hard. Yes. Um, but that's never been an issue because I think all of my characters are mentally ill in one way or another. I don't know how to write normies, so...
2: I have told... <laughs> I have told many people about your books that you tried to write a straight character once. It was your greatest failure as a writer. (laughs) And I'm joking, obviously. Kind of.
1: I have, they're mostly, you know, I have some that are like... You know, whatever.
2: Whatever. People it's are like people. it's like
1: some people like are like a Kinsey one. I, Sexuality yeah, you know, is a the, continuum, okay? Yes, you know, there's always the guy who's like it's like I'm straight, but Ryan Reynolds. You know they're like you know there's always there's there's that. I just I told a, you that in confidence,
2: a, and it was Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> but anyway,
1: I <laughs> mean that man. Did you just see his Grammys outfit? Like, I was literally about to dear, say that. I was like, my he's, God. He's like what? Not, 62? not many
0: people could pull two? that
1: off,
2: <gasps> right? Miley Cyrus couldn't pull that off, and I think Miley's gorgeous. Oh,
1: <laughs> she looked amazing though. She also she did
2: amazing, but. But, Mm.
1: but sort of, sort of like, I don't know, as I, as I think what's hard for me is as a late bloom, well, not a late bloom, late accepting queer person, because I lived very closeted in, in my, in my youth, I grew up in a very conservative Christian background. So I didn't have the vocabulary, I didn't have the understanding It is such a therapeutic thing for me to be able to write characters. And in my Netherford series, it just doesn't matter. I just decided, like, I've written plenty of stories where it is difficult to be queer, but I just decided nobody gives a shit. If you got to adopt a kid, you adopt a kid. If you fell in love with a dude and you're a dude, that's fine. Because I just wanted a place where you could just enjoy the story and have those romantic stories that, would have done so much for me as a young person to just know I could get that story. I could see myself and imagine a future like that. And so many books well, I feel like in the fall staff catalog meet those requirements. And that's one of the reasons they fall out of a lot of the bigger publishers because they, they don't know how to market something that is like that.
2: Well, blame Mercedes Lackey, by the way, <laughs> I grew up in rural South Carolina in the seventies and eighties. There was not a lot of acceptance for anything in my upbringing. And when I was in high school, I read the the Last Herald Mage trilogy by Mercedes Lackey, and it was the first time I had seen a gay character portrayed as something other than evil or ridiculous. And it opened my eyes. And it completely changed my perspective on people who aren't like me. And as I've Gone through life, I have a degree in theater. I have a thirty-year career in theater. I may have spent a lot of time around a lot of LGBTQ plus folk in my life. We, I ran the queerest theater company in three states for a while. I mean, I directed Jeffrey, I directed Bent, I directed Corpus Christi uh, for a little for a while there in the early two thousands. If it was part of the non-musical gay theater canon we were probably producing it and i was likely directing it because i learned from my friends that what i could do for them as a straight white man who is well-spoken and has a certain visibility if i can amplify their voice Mm -hmm. then it helps my friends and it makes my friends feel better about their life. It makes their lives happier and safer. And what kind of a dick would I be to not do that? Um, uh, I
1: can tell you. Cause...
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we may have met many a person who, who would is that kind of dick, but,
2: but fortunately. <laughs> I didn't really understand the concept of growing up with privilege because I was one of those one of those rednecks who was like I worked for everything I got I don't have any privilege and I did I grew up dirt poor the running joke in my family is we started with nothing and we've still got about half of that but as I came to realize how much harder my college roommate had it than me just by the fact that he had a boyfriend and not a girlfriend I mean this guy is in tears on our couch in the den one night thinking, why do people think I want to go through this? What, don't, don't you think I would be straight if it made my life easier? And I was like, now I get it. So, using Falstaff to amplify voices that are different from my own it's how i do the work for my friends you know i'm not an organized religious guy but if you're gonna do holy work it's to make the world a better place for other people and if i can get paid while doing it let's then let's go <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to get too heavy because i am still making i am still doing this shit for money But if I can use what platform I have to make the world better and safer for people, why wouldn't I? Caring about other people doesn't cost me anything. (laughs) I don't get it. So I don't know. It's just what I do. (laughs) So, yeah, we're misfits because we give a shit
1: <laughs> well, i feel like that's a great place to uh <laughs> to,
2: to, to put a it. bow on it <laughs> a, a
1: moment a moment of, of of vulnerability and sweetness from john hartness which...
2: <laughs> good thing it's at the end of the show because you got to sort through all the other <laughs> yeah you got to sort through all the dick jokes <laughs> to get to that
1: you only had a couple
0: so um we like to end all of our shows with guests where we have been over the Many years of doing this podcast, building a world on air where we each time we ask a guest to add a little bit to that world. So give us a little bit of, of trivia to, to add it to fold into this world that we've been building all this time.
2: Okay. This world has a completely non addictive plant that can be distilled to create. An alcohol, uh, a type of drink that ferments into THC. So, non-addictive, but will make you fat. Because you're going to get the munchies. Get the munchies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Back to the That's way perfect. you
1: beef, again. <laughs> <laughs>
2: i have a brand
1: the vampire buffet that should be one of your next book titles
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh we'll see what happens after black knight nine which i have to write this spring which is the final book in the black knight chronicles series we're ending that book we're ending that at nine because i've been writing that series for 15 years now
1: wow oh god you're getting old john (sighs) Well, awesome. I think we can probably, we usually kind of fade out.
0: (laughs) 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 Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Worldbuilding for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We also have an archive of all of our episodes and links to more information about the guests of this and every episode. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky as at WorldBuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.